Sunday school lesson so encouraging about God's presence with His people. Uh, just a little bit of housekeeping as we get started. I know you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Share with you that uh, today is the day we're selecting, nominating the committee that will be uh, given the task of conducting the search for an associate pastor of administration and education. And you have a ballot there, uh, you should, that looks like this. If you don't, I wish you would raise your hand and some of the guys are going to come in from the lobby and they're going to take care of that. Anyone need a ballot? Does anyone here? Okay, there's a couple back here. All right, Melvin, if y'all come in and take care of that, I think that they're not hearing me. So somebody step out and let Melvin know that. Y'all, will y'all do that for me? Thank you, Pat. Tell them to come in and let's take care of that. Here they come. All right. Uh, they'll be in in just a second. Uh, there's instructions that are pretty clear. It's a five-member committee. There must be at least one deacon on the committee that's in keeping with the bylaws and constitution of our church. That doesn't mean that you can only select one deacon. But there must be at least one deacon on there. Then, along with that, two men and two women on the committee. And so, what I would love for you to do is, uh, in just a moment, I'm going to pray and ask you to be considering that. We've told you about it over the past few weeks that this would be coming. Uh, this committee is very important because they'll be looking for that person who will come in and fill the associate pastor role. They'll be praying over that. They'll be meeting over that. And they'll be committed to the task of bringing that about. We'll be praying for God's blessing upon them. And uh, what I'm going to do real quick is kind of help you with the whole deacon thing so you can put faces. If you're a deacon at Kingsville, will you stand up for just a second? All the deacons, stand up for just a second. Look around up in the lobby here, 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 here. So if you're thinking, I can't remember a name of a deacon or a face, there you go. There's the, there's the guys. And Pat, who just came in as well, so uh, that might help you a little bit. We're not going to take those up until the end. So you've got a little bit of time. Maybe if the sermon gets a little dry partway through, you can just break away and, and uh, do that. Uh, but we'll take those up at the end. And what we'll ask you to do is pass them to the center. Um, this, this rows toward here, these rows toward here, and then uh, the guys and gals on the outside toward that row. Uh, and then up at the top, we'll do the best we can. You can move them that way. Uh, we'll come and get those at the end of the service. Uh, so we're going to pray about that. So would you bow with me? as we ask the Lord's blessing and help in this. Father, church staff is so important. Who you place to tend the flock in this position is a position with a lot of responsibility. Pressure, stress, juggling. And so we pray, Father, you give us someone first and foremost that loves you. Just that, that loves you, that that's just their heartbeat. Second, Lord, that they love the church. That it's not a job or a task, but it's a calling to a flock and a ministry to love you and love your people. And third, with a heart for evangelism and discipleship to bring folks who are saved to maturity and who aren't to Christ. And finally, Lord, just that there would be a sweet disposition as we get to share already with our staff, a sweet disposition of cooperation. We're so thankful and you're so good. 
Now bless the selection of the committee. By your Holy Spirit, inspire us to choose well and to commend to this this selection process, this prayer process, men and women who love you are led by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll join me in Matthew chapter 8, I need to lead up to the sermon to kind of give you a context of how this was chosen and why. I was at the funeral for Bonnie Elliott this past week. And a very beautiful funeral. Uh, Many of you know she was a member, um, one of the founding members with her husband David when we launched Gospel Community Church a few years ago. Just a sincere servant of the Lord. uh, Great disposition. And so um, I was attending the funeral service this past week and I was standing there. I don't get to go to a lot of funerals that I'm not doing. That's just how life is for me. And so I'm standing in the back and I'm just kind of listening and I'm watching and I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, what if it was me in David's place uh, and, and Sherry had died? Uh, what if it was me in a parent's place and a, a daughter had died or a sibling's place and a sibling had died? And I began kind of running those things through my mind. As a participant in a funeral at a, at a kind of different level than I'm normally participating. Uh, normally I'm kind of leading and preaching and encouraging and, and ministering to. So I'm standing back and, and, and as I'm processing it, there's a, a lot of raw emotion began to build up in me. I might be a little more sensitive to it right now with this uh, little medical thing that's going on with me. I, I'm, I don't know exactly what but the question that came to my mind as I looked, and here is a, a wife who has died tragically, instantly, catastrophically, all at once, a husband who actually had to go through that, and actually what he endured in that vehicle, and when he came to, and exactly what would go through if I'm sitting in my vehicle and it's my family, and and the thought of others who've suffered similar kinds of things in our congregation, and just started thinking uh, through this a little more emotively than spiritually. But I just looked at it, and I listened to all the words, and and the words were good. The preaching, the teaching, the testimonies, the music—it was sweet. And and in keeping with Bonnie Elliot, it was hilariously funny. Uh, she was that kind of person and she brought that with her where she went and a dry, strong, hilarious wit. And so there were great stories and testimonies and especially from her daughter who gave such a beautiful picture of Bonnie's life and the serious and the funny and the spiritual and the, 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 the kind of just hilarious side there was. And, and so I'm soaking all that in. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, you know, if there's not something behind all that we're doing today, this is really just a great big hoax. If there's not something behind all these words and all these prayers and all these songs, if there's not something behind all these Scriptures and all this 
laughter in the midst of tragedy. If there's not something behind this, we're really in trouble. And this is just, it's, it's, it's just a, a charade. And so in my mind, I said to myself, looking at that casket and looking at that husband in his raw sorrow, genuine faith, who's going to walk out of there without her as he's already felt, but it's going to grow in its power for a while. And I just said to myself, can somebody fix this? Can anybody fix this? Why are we rejoicing in such tragedy? Why are we praising in such tragedy when a guy's going to walk out without his wife and he's going to feel the full weight of what that's like? Can anybody fix this? And so I kind of folded my arms standing in the back of the place that we were meeting over in the Granbury Center and, and, I, and I said, if there's not something behind all this, as the Apostle Paul said, we of all men are most to be pitied. And so it pushed me home to the Scriptures and how Jesus laid a foundation for the way that we could cope that day and it not be fake, it not be a charade, it not be hopeless. They even read the Scripture that we grieve not as those who have no hope. And so I said, where does Jesus handle this? And what can we as a church, what can I as a believer fortify myself with to help me be sure that this is more than pie-in-the-sky idealism. It's more than just some happy thought that we think positively to cope with the, the, the tragedies of life. That there really is something under this. And I, God just led me to Matthew 8 and 9. And so what I wanted to do today is to say, to answer the question, can somebody fix this? And with a clear testimony from Jesus Himself say, yes, and here's the evidence. No place in the Bible gives the rapidity and the seriousness of the miracles of Jesus as the two chapters in Matthew 8 and 9. No place packs so many miracles in and covers so much territory in the miracles, to teach us something about someone who can fix something that nobody else can. You see, if we left that day from that funeral, if we walked out of that funeral that day, and there was not something under all that, then what we were doing is we were trying to encourage people to latch on to some kind of hope that's really not there in order to to grapple with the things of life, which people all over the world are doing every day. But that there's something real behind it. And so, let's go here and 
I, what I did is I broke, I, I took the miracles in, in Matthew 8 and 9. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through all of them. I know that that's a little unusual, but I'm just going to read through them. And I just want you to listen. And then I want to break them into five pieces because every one of them has five basic or principal components. So here we go. I'm going to pick up after Steve's reading. He read 8, 1 through 13. I'm going to pick up in 8, 14. And so whether just reading your Bible or if Robin can pull it up on screen, I think she probably could, if I give her just a second, she could get Matthew eight fourteen and just kind of go from there through chapter 9. But I want you to listen to the miracles and watch them go bam, 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 bam. And what they are and how Jesus interacts. So here we go. We, we got originally from Steve the leper. And then the servant that was lying paralyzed in terrible pain from the centurion. So here we are in Matthew 8, 14. When Jesus had come to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. And he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and waited on him. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word. And he healed all who were ill. In order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me. Allow the dead to bury their own dead. And when he had got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he had come to the other side of the country, of the, uh, into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so exceedingly violent that no one could pass by that road. And behold, they cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was at a distance from them a herd of many swine feeding, and the demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Be gone. And they came out and went into the swine, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. And the herdsmen ran away and went into the city and reported everything, including the incident of the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and they saw Him, and they entreated Him to depart from their region. And getting into a boat, He crossed over, and He came to His own city. And behold, they were bringing to Him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes and said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, what are you, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For it is easier... Excuse me. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? 
But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, go home. And he rose, and he went home. But when the multitude saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to men. As he passed by from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax office. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were reclining with him and eating with him. And when they saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and sinners? When he heard this, he says, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst. And the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, there came a synagogue official and bowed down before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I shall get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. And when Jesus came into the official's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. And he said, depart, for the girl has not died, but she is asleep. And they began laughing at him. And when the crowd had been put out, he entered and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And this news went out into all the land. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed Him, crying out, saying, Have mercy on us, Son of David! And after He had come into the house, the blind men came up to Him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to Him, Yes, Lord. He touched their eyes, saying, Be it done according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See here, let no one know about this. But they went out and spread this news about Him in all the land. And as they were going out, behold, a dumb man, demon-possessed, was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the dumb man spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Of course, you lead right into what we preached on last week in Jesus' compassion. Nowhere in the Bible is it packed in like that. The stories of the miracles are spread out in, you know, in Acts and, of course, in the other Gospels. But nowhere does it just go bam, 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 bam with so many and so much packed in to Jesus' life and to His ministry. So I want to walk you through characteristics of all these and then I want to tell you why I want us to dwell on this. So number one in your outline, there was an impossible situation. As I was standing in that funeral the other day, we had an impossible situation. And I looked, and here's a casket, and here's a husband, and here are children, and here are friends. 
And, and I said, who can fix this? We're talking like it's going to be okay. We're talking like it's going to be alright. What's under that? Is this like all the other world religions where we have this story of reincarnation, or we have this story of evolution, or we have this story of migration? What is behind this that gives us any hope in an impossible situation? Jesus was clear to make sure that something would be passed on to us that said, bam, 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 all the impossible situations you can think of just lined up all at once. Deaf people, demon-possessed, mute, paralyzed, dead, fever, blind. You just go through all of these things and no one could help any of these people. Lepers, hopeless, skin is rotting, bones exposed. They're dying day by day as their flesh falls off. They can't hug, they can't kiss their lips themselves begin to decay, where if you've seen pictures of lepers, you see that the lips are gone, the nose is gone, and there is just this strange exposure of teeth and sinus cavities and bones on their fingers and toes, and you think, is there anybody who could fix that? And a daughter lying in a bed, dead. A servant lying paralyzed. Guys so violent that they live in tombs and nobody can pass the road and nobody can chain or revive them. A woman who, according to Mark in chapter 5, has already spent all of her livelihood over 12 years going to physicians and healers and all kinds. And not only has she not gotten cured, she's gotten worse. And in every one of these cases, what you see is an impossible situation. You see something that nobody can fix. You see something that is beyond human remedy. And everybody in it knows that. And every one of the stories just starkly says, here it is. And I think we've read the story so many times that we forget what it's like to have a hopeless situation. Our lives are pretty smooth. There's not a lot of hopelessness sewn into what we experience here in the U.S. The thing everybody's worried about is an election. And it's like a froth right now with everybody yelling at everybody and hating on everybody all over the U.S. Like that's the biggest problem we have when the truth is in a hundred years we're all going to be dead. And if nobody can't fix that, it doesn't matter who's the president. And so... What happens is we lose connection and for just a moment, in that funeral, God just peeled back my little hard heart and said, feel some of this. It's real. Hear the story of a man who, after the impact of the car, wakes up and and, and knows that his wife has just perished. He can't do anything. Men are fixtures. You know what knuckleheads we are, ladies? We want to fix things. Often our wives will look at us and they'll have to say to us, look, I just want you to listen to me. Don't try to fix this. Ladies, have you ever had to do that? Just listen to me. Don't try to fix it. We're fixers. And so I'm thinking, what is this husband going through? So this raw emotions coming out of me going, can somebody fix this? Because we can't. 
We're sealing her up tight in a coffin and we're rolling that lock down on it and we're pushing it over to the cemetery and we're dropping it six feet under and we're walking away. And if there's not somebody who can fix this, we're in trouble. And so what Jesus simply does is He says, I can fix anything. And He walks through these two chapters in Matthew and He just says, bring whatever it is to My feet and I will show you what I can do. And He does. And people come to Him in, in situations that are impossible. Which leads to the second point. There was a, a kind of desperation in all these people. You just go through the desperation of a leper as the skin slowly fades from their body until it finally gets to the place where the body can no longer sustain itself. And they die. They go without a hug. They go without a kiss. They go without an embrace. They go without a touch. And they live life like that. And it's kind of desperate. And they come to Jesus and they say, can you help us? And a man with a servant who says he's, he's suffering, he's paralyzed, and there's nothing we can do. But Jesus, I'm not even worthy for you to come in my house, but if you'll just speak the Word, you can do this. And Jesus does it. And men, blind, begging on the street, have mercy on us, Son of David! Have mercy on us! So much so that in the other account, everybody's trying to put their hands over their mouth because they're an embarrassment. Oh, the Messiah's in town. Don't bother Him with your problems. But they understood in their desperation, in the impossible situation, there is one that we can cry out to, and He hears us. He is not deaf. And I love what He says to those guys. You think I can handle this? I love that. I wonder how many times God is waiting to answer something in our life by saying to us, you think I can handle this? And we're in our knuckleheadedness going, I don't know if any, I don't think you can handle this, God. And so here is this desperation. This woman who, think about the desperation she's at after 12 years of this illness and spending everything she's got and she has no hope. And I mean, her final hope is a, is a part-time minister who's passing through town and she rushes out to meet him with just one hope, not even a conversation. She thinks, if I could catch up in the middle of this crowd, if I can bump my way through, and if I can reach down and touch the hem of his garment, this guy can do something. And she does. And remember in the one account later in, in, in Mark, he says, hey, who touched me? And the disciples go, oh, Jesus, it's like a big crowd. There's no way to know. He said, no, no, no. Somebody touched me in a different way. And of course, she's scared to death and she falls down at His feet. And, and, and the King of the universe looks down at her in her humility and He says, daughter. That's a pretty good word right there, isn't it? That Jesus would say, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And so there's this beautiful work of Jesus in an impossible situation. 
And no matter what the impossibility is, Matthew 8 and 9 basically say, just whatever it is, He can handle it. People who've been inhabited by demons so much that they're called legion, and they're actually cutting themselves, and they're, they're vicious, and they're malicious, and they can't be bound with chain, and they live with dead bones in tombs. These guys are as sick as you can get. And who would have given any hope to those guys? Nobody except Jesus. And here in this desperation, they come out of the graves with chains kind of tinkling on their arms that they've broken out of, and they come out, and and Jesus meets them right there. And His authority is such that the demons quake at His presence. This is who, this is who brings us through funerals. Not some legend. And so in our desperation, I'm standing there and I'm thinking, can anybody fix this? Well, that moves us to a relationship that we have. There was an act of supplication in faith. Very imperfect faith. Listen, Jesus got on to them for having little faith. But He didn't say they had no faith. I would rather have the little bit of faith that the disciples had when they were on the boat and it was sinking to be smart enough to wake Jesus up. Jesus didn't say, you of no faith. He said, you of little faith. At least they knew who to wake up in the storm. I want to tell you, you're going to go through some storms in your life sometime and there's not going to be anybody awake but you and you need to go and wake Jesus up, but He won't be asleep. He'll be knowing exactly what's going on. But that's the one you need to have. If that's all the little bit of faith that you have, at least you'll be asking the one who can do something about it. He stands up and He looks at the sea, raging, roaring, sinking their ship. And He simply says, be still. And bam! And the disciples look at each other and say, what manner of man is this? that even the wind and sea obey Him. See, what Jesus did in Matthew 8 and 9 is He showed His command of every realm. The realm of death, the realm of nature, the realm of sickness, the realm of demons. He showed His command of every realm to say, You are living in a world whose fall has made your success impossible. It has made your life impossible. It has made your eternity impossible. So you need someone to step into this fall to make the impossible possible through His power. This is His work. And so there was an act of supplication in faith. The woman coming and touching. Peter bringing him to his mother-in-law. The guys bringing the paralyzed guy on the, on the, 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 
the litter that they're carrying him on. There's these acts of supplication where people say, Can you help me? So there's this relationship of asking that God is a personal God and He loves this personal interaction and Jesus rewards these people. This guy comes to Him and He says, My servant is lying there and, and I don't deserve you to come by my house. Now, how many of us have that kind of humility to say to Jesus, I don't deserve you to even stop by. But if you'll just think about this and say the word, it will happen because you have this authority. And this supplication is so sincere, it's so humble, and he says, please, help my servant. And so there is this supplication, if you go through Matthew 8 and 9, almost, not every, but almost every situation, there is an asking, and there is some kind of belief in Jesus' ability. Even confirmed, again, in the story of the, 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 the blind men, when Jesus says, do you think I can handle this? Do you think I can do this? And he says, yes. And so they're asking, but they're asking with trust. So when I'm standing there at that funeral and these words begin to flow of amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, when words begin to flow of confidence in the resurrection, words begin to flow, this isn't worked into some fable, not into some false hope, not into some vain thing. This is all built upon someone that we have seen and heard in the Bible do the impossible. And come when there's desperation and come and respond when there's supplication. But number four, there was a compassionate intervention. Jesus has the power to intervene in the fall. You see, all of what is happening to us is a direct result of sin. Now, Jesus makes that connection on several occasions. Now, He doesn't say it's the direct result of this sin or this sin. But He says it's the direct result of sin. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. And so there is this presence of the corruption and death and the fall through sin. And so Jesus steps in to show that He is able to overcome all of the symptoms and consequences of sin. But later He's going to make clear how that was done. By overcoming sin and death itself. And so here is a compassionate intervention where Jesus steps in and personally changes the outcome. This is really important in understanding how we face difficulty. Remember that Jesus said that He did not heal all the people who needed healing on the earth. He said it. He was asked and they got really mad at Him about why didn't you heal everybody that was in this crowd or everybody in every town that you went to? Why didn't you do that? And he tells a story about during the days in the Old Testament, there were many widows suffering that only only this particular one received this blessing. Because these are not the ultimate realities. These are what John said are signs to an ultimate reality. 
Your physical healing is not the ultimate reality. And therefore, on this earth, your impossible situation may not bring about an intervention. In fact, every one of you and I, we're going to die. And that's our biggest issue, is that if we die in our sin, there's no intervention. But that Jesus has stepped in and through these signs made clear of what He is capable of, not just physically, but spiritually and eternally. And so John calls all of these miracles signs. They're all pointing to something greater. And so here's Jesus' compassionate intervention, displaying His power, showing His mercy, giving His compassion, and also pointing to something greater. Pointing to a reality far beyond our comprehension. That leads us to number five. And that is, there was a reversal or a restoration. I use the word reversal because I think back of the fall and how before the fall, everything was good and holy and perfect and right and it was good, 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 very good in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and there's that beauty of creation there and, and then something comes into it, sin and death and brings all this about. And so there has to be a reversal of that. There has to be a restoration of something beyond our comprehension really. I want to take you to a verse to illustrate it. It's in... Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, it's kind of become one of those verses that is a go-to for me when I think through Jesus' life and kind of try to summarize it. This is so good because here is the undoing. If I'm standing there at that funeral and I'm saying, okay, uh, this is an impossible situation. It's impossible in experience. It's impossible in, 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 in remedy. There's nothing I can do to... Fix this. I can't relieve this man's suffering. I can't take it away. I can't take the absence from him. I can't. I don't, I don't have that ability, and I can't bring this person back. And so, if there's not somebody who can fix this, this whole celebration is a sham. So, is there somebody who can fix this? And so, here in chapter two of Hebrews, verse fourteen through fifteen, is this beautiful picture. It says, since the children, that is the children of God, share in flesh and blood, that's the human experience, Jesus Himself likewise also partook of the same, that is flesh and blood, human experience. That through death, He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Here is the great fix, the great undoing, the great intervention that brings the restoration. It is Jesus' death. The power that Jesus gave in delivering us from the consequences of sin, whether it's demon possession or leprosy or paralyzed or the, the death of the girl or the, the suffering of the, of the servant laying there on the bed or, or the blindness or the muteness or the deafness, whatever it is, 
Those are all consequences of the fall. Those are all things that came out of the fall. When sin and death entered the world, and here comes Jesus to show His authority over those things. But that authority was attained in a just way by His own death. Because what He had to do, hear me, is He had to absorb into His person everything that He would remedy. He had to absorb into His person everything that He would remedy. Whatever it was that He was going to ultimately set us free from is what He had to take into Himself. That's why when He's there in the garden, and He's on His face before His Father, and He says, Father, if there's any way, remove this cup from Me, but not what I will, but what Your will is. If there's any way, why? Because what's happening is that 2 Corinthians 5 is about to take place. He who knew no sin became sin. And so to cleanse the leper, he had to swallow into his being the fall and the leprosy. To cleanse the blindness, he had to swallow into his being the fall and its blindness. The fall and its paralysis. He had to take upon himself all of the results sin. And the wrath of God would be poured upon him and he would drink it as a cup into his infinite being. And because he drinks it in, he sets you free from it. That's what it means in Isaiah 53 where it says he himself bore our infirmities. Because He is taking into Himself all of the punishment, all of the outcome, all of the consequences of all of the children of God and He's drinking it in so that He can touch you and free you for all of eternity. So that He can undo all these things. So the hope that you and I have the privilege of living in, and I step into that funeral and I look at this husband, and I know that he feels the raw reality of something that I cannot comprehend. And he looks down at something that he cannot fix. But then he looks to a Savior who has already made very clear All of His capabilities. But only in temporal hints of eternal realities. In other words, when you step into heaven, what you will see will be better than having been born blind and having seen for the first time on earth.
what you will see in that moment will be as if you had been blind all of your life. It will be as if you have always been dead and now you know what life feels like. It will be as if you have always been lame and now you know what it is to leap. In other words, all of these physical manifestations were hints of eternal spiritual realities that God is going to bust open into your life on the day that He makes all things new. And you have only ever had a hint of joy. And so what God is doing through these signs and these miracles is first communicating to you He is the God of the impossible. Communicating to you that your desperation and your genuine cry to Him brings a compassionate intervention and that He is setting you up for an eternal... Back to that last slide for me, Robin. He's setting you up to an eternal restoration. Listen to the words. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself shall be among them, and He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning. There shall no longer be any crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what your impossible thing is. But I want to commend to you that there is a Savior who was willing to take in His person the penalty for your sin and to die in your place on the cross and to be verified by the resurrection and by the ascension and by the seating on the right hand of God. And that Savior is just as ready today as He was in Matthew 8 and 9 to hear your cry, your plea, And to grant you His compassionate intervention with the hope of His eternal restoration. And I want to encourage you to trust Him no matter what comes. Because He has shown us that He is able. Would you bow with me? He is able. And so this morning, I want you to trust that. I want you to come away from this in whatever it is you've doubted, in whatever it is you've struggled, in whatever it is that you have felt hopeless. And I want you to know that there is one who has nothing but hope to give. And He is Jesus.
And He loves you with the compassion of a shepherd, with the love of a brother, with the knowledge of a father, with the power of a Savior. Jesus wants to be this to you. And so maybe this morning you would cry out to Him. Maybe for the first time. Maybe you're a doubter and the kind of thoughts that I was having in the funeral the other day are thoughts you have all the time. Maybe this is just a hoax. Well, I want to tell you from personal experience, when you call upon Him, He is able to deliver. He will forgive your sins. He will wash you clean. He will make you new. And He will instill in you by the power of His Holy Spirit a living hope. Gospel hope. But it's you who at the prodding of His Spirit need to turn and to call on Him and ask Him, Dear God, save me. Receive me. I believe You. I trust Jesus. I'll follow Him today. Would You have me? Oh, what's wonderful is that You've never done too much that God cannot redeem you. Come to Jesus. Some of you are struggling in your Christian walk and you've had some doubts and some setbacks and some hurts. Let Jesus handle those. He is able. I want you to know the sweet relief that each of these folks felt when they knew that someone had changed their situation. Would you come to Jesus today? Would you call on Jesus today? Would you stand? As God stirs your heart, would you respond to Him?